Section 13 of Good Sense. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Good Sense by Paul Henri Thierry, Baron Dolbach. Translator unknown. Section 13, parts 133 through 140. 133. FANATICISM OF MARTYRS AND THE INTERESTED ZEAL OF MISSIONARIES To die for religion proves not that the religion is true or divine, it proves, at most, that it is supposed to be such. An enthusiast proves nothing by his death unless that religious fanaticism is often stronger than the love of life. An impostor may sometimes die with courage, he then makes in the language of the proverb a virtue of necessity. People are often surprised and affected at sight of the generous courage and disinterested zeal which has prompted missionaries to preach their doctrine even at the risk of suffering the most rigorous treatment. From this ardor for the salvation of men are drawn inferences favorable to the religion they have announced. But in reality, this disinterestedness is only apparent. He who ventures nothing should gain nothing. A missionary seeks to make his fortune by his doctrine. He knows that if he is fortunate enough to sell his commodity, he will become absolute master of those who receive him for their guide. He is sure of becoming the object of their attention, respect, and veneration. Such are the true motives which kindle the zeal and charity of so many preachers and missionaries. To die for an opinion proves the truth or goodness of that opinion no more than to die in battle proves the justice of a cause in which thousands have the folly to devote their lives. The courage of a martyr, elated with the idea of paradise, is not more supernatural than the courage of a soldier intoxicated with the idea of glory, or impelled by the fear of disgrace. What is the difference between an Iroquois, who sings while he is burning by inches, and the martyr St. Lawrence, who upon the gridiron insults his tyrant? The preachers of a new doctrine fail because they are the weakest. Apostles generally practice a perilous trade. Their courageous death proves neither the truth of their principles nor their own sincerity any more than the violent death of the ambitious man or of the robber proves that they were right in disturbing society or that they thought themselves authorized in so doing. The trade of a missionary was always flattering to ambition and formed a convenient method of living at the expense of the vulgar. These advantages have often been enough to efface every idea of danger. 134. Theology makes its God an enemy to reason and common sense. You tell us, theologians, that what is folly in the eyes of men is the wisdom before God who delights to confound the wisdom of the wise. But do you not say that human wisdom is a gift of heaven? In saying this wisdom displeases God is but folly in his sight, and that he is pleased to confound it, you declare that your God is the friend only of ignorant people, and that he makes sensible people a fatal present for which this perfidious tyrant 
promises to punish them cruelly at some future day. Is it not strange that one can be the friend of your God only by declaring oneself the enemy of reason and good sense? 135. Faith irreconcilable with reason, and reason preferable to faith. According to the divines, faith is an assent without evidence. Whence it follows that religion requires us firmly to believe inevident things, and propositions often improbable or contrary to reason. But when we reject reason as a judge of faith, do we not confess that reason is incompatible with faith? As the ministers of religion have resolved to banish reason, they must have felt the impossibility of reconciling it with faith, which is visibly only a blind submission to priests, whose authority seems to many persons more weighty than evidence itself and preferable to the testimony of the senses. Sacrifice your reason, renounce experience, mistrust the testimony of your senses, submit without inquiry to what we announce to you in the name of heaven. Such is the uniform language of priests throughout the world. They agree upon no point except upon the necessity of never reasoning upon the principles which they present to us as most important to our felicity. I will not sacrifice my reason, because this reason alone enables me to distinguish good from evil, truth from falsehood. If, as you say, my reason comes from God, I shall never believe that a God, whom you call good, has given me reason as a snare to lead me to perdition. Priest, do you not see that by decrying reason you calumniate your God from whom you declare it to be a gift? I will not renounce experience, because it is a guide much more sure than the imagination or authority of spiritual guides. Experience teaches me that enthusiasm and interest may blind and lead them astray themselves, and that the authority of experience ought to have much more influence upon my mind than the suspicious testimony of many men who I know are either very liable to be deceived themselves or otherwise are very much interested in deceiving others. I will mistrust my senses because I am sensible they sometimes mislead me. But, on the other hand, I know that they will not always deceive me. I well know that the eye shows me the sun much smaller than it really is, but experience, which is only the repeated application of the senses, informs me that objects always appear to diminish as their distance increases. Thus I attain to a certainty that the sun is much larger than the earth. Thus my senses suffice to rectify the hasty judgments which they themselves had caused. In warning us to mistrust the testimony of our senses, the priests annihilate the proofs of all religion. If men may be dupes of their imagination, if their senses are deceitful, how shall we believe the miracles which struck the treacherous senses of our ancestors? If my senses are unfaithful guides, I ought not to credit even the miracles wrought before my eyes. 136. To what absurd and ridiculous sophisms the religious are reduced. 
you incessantly repeat that the truths of religion are above reason. If so, do you not perceive that these truths are not adapted to reasonable beings? To pretend that reason can deceive us is to say that truth can be false, that the useful can be hurtful. Is reason anything but a knowledge of the useful and true? Besides, as our reason and senses are our only guides in this life, to say they are unfaithful is to say that our errors are necessary, our ignorance invincible, and that, without the extreme of injustice, God cannot punish us for following the only guides it was his supreme will to give. To say we are obliged to believe things above our reason is ridiculous. To assure us that upon some objects we are not allowed to consult reason is to say that, in the most interesting matter, we must consult only imagination, or act only at random. Our divines say we must sacrifice our reason to God. But what motives can we have to sacrifice our reason to a being who makes us only useless presents, which he does not intend us to use? What confidence can we put in a God who, according to our divines themselves, is malicious enough to harden the heart, to strike with blindness, to lay snares for us, to lead us into temptation. In fine, what confidence can we put in the ministers of this God who, to guide us more conveniently, commands us to shut our eyes? 137. Ought a man to believe on the assurance of another man? Men are persuaded that religion is to them of all things the most serious, while it is precisely what they least examine for themselves. In pursuit of an office, a piece of land, a house, a place of profit, in any transaction or contract, whatever, everyone carefully examines all, takes the greatest precaution, weighs every word of a writing, is guarded against every surprise. Not so in religion. Everyone receives it at a venture, and believes it upon the word of others, without ever taking the trouble to examine. Two causes concur to foster the negligence and carelessness of men with regard to their religious opinions. The first is the despair of overcoming the obscurity in which all religion is necessarily enveloped. Their first principles are only adapted to disguise lazy minds who regard them as a chaos impossible to be understood. The second cause is that everyone is averse to being too much bound by severe precepts, which all admire in theory, but very few care to practice with rigor. The religion of many people is like old family ties, which they have never taken pains to examine, but which they deposit in their archives to have recourse to them occasionally. 138. Faith can take root only in feeble, ignorant, or slothful minds. The disciples of Pythagoras paid implicit faith to the doctrine of their master. He has said it, was to them the solution of every problem. The generality of men are not more rational, in matters of religion, a curate, a priest, an ignorant monk, becomes master of the thoughts. 
Faith relieves the weakness of the human mind, to which application is commonly painful. It is much more convenient to depend upon others than to examine for oneself. Inquiry, being slow and difficult, equally displeases the stupidity of the ignorant and the ardor of the enlightened. Such is undoubtedly the reason why faith has so many partisans. The more men are deficient in knowledge and reason, the more zealous they are in religion. In theological quarrels, the populace, like ferocious beasts, fall upon all those against whom their priest is desirous of exciting them. A profound ignorance, boundless credulity, weak intellect, and warm imagination are the materials of which are made bigots, zealots, fanatics, and saints. How can the voice of reason be heard by them who make it a principle never to examine for themselves, but to submit blindly to the guidance of others? The saints and the populace are, in the hands of their directors, automatons, moved at pleasure. 139. That one religion has greater pretensions to truth and absurdity. Religion is an affair of custom and fashion. We must do as others do. But, among the numerous religions in the world, which should men choose? This inquiry would be too painful and long. They must therefore adhere to the religion of their fathers, to that of their country, which, having force on its side, must be the best. If we judge of the intentions of providence by the events and revolutions of this world, we are compelled to believe that he is very indifferent about the various religions upon earth. For thousands of years, paganism, polytheism, idolatry were the prevailing religions. We are now assured that the most flourishing nations had not the least idea of God, an idea regarded as so essential to the happiness of man. Christians say all mankind lived in the grossest ignorance of their duties toward God, and had no notions of him, but what were insulting to his divine majesty. Christianity, growing out of Judaism, very humble in its obscure origin, became powerful and cruel under the Christian emperors, who, prompted by holy zeal, rapidly spread it in their empire by means of fire and sword, and established it upon the ruins of paganism. Mohammed and his successors, seconded by providence, or their victorious arms, in a short time banished the Christian religion from a part of Asia, Africa, and even Europe, and the gospel was then forced to yield to the Koran. In all the factions or sects which for many ages have distracted Christianity, the best argument has been always that of the strongest party. Arms have decided which doctrine is most conducive to the happiness of nations. May we not hence infer either that the deity feels little interested in the religion of men, or that he always declares in favor of the opinions which best suit the interest of earthly powers, in fine, that he changes his plan to accommodate their fancy. Rulers infallibly decide the religion of the people. The true religion is always the religion of the prince, 
the true God, is the God whom the prince desires his people to adore. The will of the priests, who govern the prince, always becomes the will of God. A wit justly observed that the true religion is always that on whose side are the prince and the hangman. Emperors and hangmen long supported the gods of Rome against the god of Christians. The latter, having gained to his interest the emperors, their soldiers, and their hangmen, succeeded in destroying the worship of the Roman gods. The god of Mohammed has dispossessed the god of Christians of a great part of the dominions which he formerly occupied. In the eastern part of Asia is a vast, flourishing, fertile, populous country governed by such wise laws that the fiercest conquerors have adopted them with respect. I mean China. Excepting Christianity, which was banished as dangerous, the people there follow such superstitions as they please, while the mandarins, or magistrates, having long known the errors of the popular religion, are vigilant to prevent the bonzes or priests from using it as an instrument of discord. Yet we see not that Providence refuses his blessing to a nation whose chiefs are so indifferent about the worship that is rendered to him. On the contrary, the Chinese enjoy a happiness and repose worthy to be envied, by the many nations whom religion divides and often devastates. We cannot reasonably propose to divest the people of their follies, but we may perhaps cure the follies of those who govern the people, and who will then prevent the follies of the people from becoming dangerous. Superstition is to be feared only when princes and soldiers rally round her standard, then she becomes cruel and sanguinary. Every sovereign who is the protector of one sect or religious faction is commonly the tyrant of others, and becomes himself the most cruel disturber of the peace of his dominions. 140. Religion is unnecessary to morality. It is incessantly repeated, and many sensible persons are induced to believe, that religion is a restraint necessary to men that without it there would no longer exist the least check for the vulgar, and that morality and religion are intimately connected with it. The fear of the Lord, cries the priest, is the beginning of wisdom. The terrors of another life are salutary, and are proper to curb the passions of men. To perceive the inutility of religious notions, we have only to open our eyes and contemplate the morals of those nations who are the most under the dominion of religion. We there find proud tyrants, oppressive ministers, perfidious courtiers, shameless extortioners, corrupt magistrates, knaves, adulterers, debauchees, prostitutes, thieves, and rogues of every kind who have never doubted either the existence of an avenging and rewarding God, the torments of hell, or the joys of paradise. Without the least utility to the greater part of mankind, the ministers of religion have studied to render death terrible to the eyes of their followers. If devout Christians could but be consistent, 
they would pass their whole life in tears and die under the most dreadful apprehensions. What can be more terrible than death to the unfortunate who are told that it is horrible to fall into the hands of the living God, that we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Yet we are assured that the death of the Christian is attended with infinite consolations of which the unbeliever is deprived. The good Christian, it is said, dies in the firm hope of an eternal happiness which he has strived to merit. But is not this firm assurance itself a presumption punishable in the eyes of a severe God? Ought not the greatest saints to be ignorant whether they are worthy of love or hatred? Ye priests, while consoling us with the hope of the joys of paradise, have you then had the advantage to see your names and ours inscribed in the book of life? End of section 13 Recording by Roger Moline